Welcome to Socrates in the City. I am very glad to thank you. I am just glad to see so many uh, of you here tonight for an historic event because someone is going to be murdered this evening, <laughs> I think. Um, I actually do say historic, please, okay, it's not all about laughs. Um, I say historic because in the nearly 14 years of Socrates in the City, we have never had two guests. Uh, I, I have to say that's completely intentional. Uh, it's just the hassle. Who needs the hassle? Um, uh, having one guest, you know, it, it's worked for us. Um, but I, I did think, you know, if it was possible at some point to try two guests, uh, I, I, I would, I would want to do that. Because all the shows that I loved growing up with in the 70s, Dick Cavett, who apologizes, he could not be uh, here tonight. Uh, but his show, sometimes he'd have on two people, sometimes very different people, uh, and always two separate people, if there were, there were two. Does that make sense? And um, thank you. And then, of course, Merv Griffin uh, would always have at least two people. Once he had on Spiro Agnew for the whole hour, I remember that. <laughs> Before Agnew was a laugh line. Uh, but I'm Greek, so I don't laugh too hard. And, um, and then, uh, yeah, and usually Merv, if he had on two or three guests, at least one of them was uh, either uh, Chero or Jamie Farr. I don't know if you remember that. Um, and then, of course, who can forget Mike Douglas? Most of us, yeah. Uh, now, don't... Uh, I, but, you know, actually, I don't... Forget, I, I really enjoyed Mike Douglas. Do you know who produced Mike Douglas? I wonder if anybody in the room knows. Not a joke. The same man who produces those guys over there. Roger Ailes produced Mike Douglas. Oh, yeah. And so, anyway, so Raj and I are kind of talking about his producing my um, talk show. That's still top secret. It's very, I'm not kidding. It's extreme. It shouldn't leave the room. It's very secret. It's so secret. This is true. It is so secret that R Roger himself doesn't know about this yet. So, um, but anyway, so I decided, yes, we're going to try it. We're going to have two guests, see what happens. But, but who are those two guests of whom I speak? Well, actually, first of all, we really were going to have one guest. It was going to be uh, Cal Thomas. Uh, I wanted to have Cal... Um, you know, because he's got this wonderful new book out. The title is What Works? Common Sense Solutions for a Stronger America. I just wanted to talk to him about that book. Um, and actually, the book, just to say a word on the book, you'll hear more tonight, but if, if we apply the wisdom uh, in that book, according to Cal, we, meaning the U.S., will, astri will stand astride the community of nations like a colossus again. Yes, we will be able once more to command the attention of the world just like, for example, Vladimir Putin is able to do. That's a bitter joke. Okay, so the first reason for having Cal was his book. The second reason that I wanted to have Cal tonight is that this year, right about now, marks the 30th anniversary of his syndicated column. Feel free to applaud. Um, yeah, congratulations. We were going to have a cake, but, you know. Um, the... That column, if you think about 30 years, is far older than uh, I think some of the people uh, in the room here. Uh, that, that really is venerable. I thought Socrates in the City was venerable. That's, that's venerable. Um, that's a long time. I mean, I, I know for a fact that your first uh, column was, um, was written in cuneiform on clay tablets with a, 
with a stylus, I think. Uh, very few people know how to use a stylus. Uh, and I believe in that column you were being critical of the fiscal policies of Hammurabi, if I'm getting that right. I think so. Uh, anyway, uh, and you were one of the early adopters of, of papyrus when it was finally invented a century after you began. But, but seriously, folks, um, but that column now appears in hundreds of newspapers. It is, I believe, this is what the, ca uh, the Chicago Tribune says, that it is the number one syndicated column in the United States of America and territories. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, over 500 newspapers. And actually, there are only 500 newspapers in existence left. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, it's like 502, something like that. Um, Cal is often on Fox News, and despite death threats from Mr. Ailes not to do so, Cal has appeared on many other networks and TV programs. Incl right? But you're still alive. I don't know how you do it. Including Nightline, Good Morning America, Larry King Live, and Oprah. Really? <laughs> you know, if I were Ailes, I would have you whacked out just for that. Oprah? I love Oprah. Et tu, Cal? Really? Oprah? Anyway, but the best description of Cal Thomas that I could find was from, this is no joke, Jay Leno. It's on his book. You can check it out. Uh, this is what Jay Leno has to say about Cal Thomas. Who? No, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. That's not it. No. Uh, this is the quote. You know that old curmudgeonly uncle everyone ignores at holiday time, and then someone asks him a question, and you realize he knows what he's talking about? That's Cal Thomas. That's, uh, yeah, right. Uh, anyway, so I said I was really, I was excited to have Cal here uh, as my, my guest, and I was excited when he said yes. But then he said he'd like to invite a friend along, and from the cover of the book, I don't know if you've seen it, I naturally assumed that he meant the, the groundhog that's perched on his shoulder. Uh, and he, that's exactly who he, he did mean. Uh, so I said, eh, I don't know, the Union League Club's an old fussy club, they've got these rules, uh, strict non-animal policy that dates back to their founding, um, and which, if necessary, they will enforce with uh, muskets and bayonets. They'll do, they'll do that, right? But then, before we even had to deal with that, Cal said the groundhog could not make it. Uh, evidently, the gig on the cover of Cal's book has led to many other gigs. Uh, tonight, actually, the groundhog's up the 92nd Street Y, uh, having a conversation with Kirstie Alley, I think, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they got the same agent now. They, yeah. um, but then said, Cal said, well, wait a minute, I think I can salvage this. What about Bob Beckel? And I said, Bob Beckel, Cal, you're, you're really conservative. Uh, Beckel is, is kind of liberal, you know. Um, he's like a Fox liberal. He's not that liberal, okay? But, he's, <laughs> but he's, he's more liberal than Alan Combs, right? He's like, you know, he's, he's like a Mondale liberal, like, you know, before things went crazy. And um, I said, Socrates, you know, to have a liberal and conservative, Socrates in the city is all about civility, right? And I said, putting the, you guys together would be crazy. Uh, it's like putting a, a cobra and a mongoose in a cage and just watching what happens. That's not something I want to do. But, but Cal said, no, no. He says, Bob Beckel and he were, were friends, actually. And he said that uh, they write a, a bi-weekly column together in USA Today. It's even titled common ground. They go over issues of the day, try to discuss them in a civil and gracious manner. Uh, and they even wrote a book together titled Common Ground, How to Stop the Partisan War that is Destroying America. And I said, wow, that could work. 
because Socrates and Sadi really is about civility uh, and graciousness. Uh, and if you didn't know that, you're an idiot. <laughs> so, sorry, that happens every time. I'm so sorry. I, I break my own rules. I'm so sorry. Um, so anyway, so yes, Cal is staunchly conservative, but I think it is safe to say he puts people before politics. Uh, he's friendly with people all over the political and theological spectrum. Uh, but I think he draws the line at Mayor de Blasio, who's a communist. I don't know if you knew that, right? Yeah, don't joke. Don't joke about that. Um, but seriously, even Dick Cavett, uh, who is a, is a liberal, couldn't be here tonight, I mentioned, he remembered Cal from the CNBC days when I invited him to this, and he said, yes, I remember, I, I like that guy. And, you know, so I, by the way, I, I got to say, I try to mention Dick Cavett uh, as often as Dick Cavett used to mention Groucho, which is very often. Um, so anyway, so I'm, I'm just so thrilled that we really do have these... Uh, Two guests. Now, Bob Beckel has been described as, quote, the curmudgeonly uncle everyone ignores at holiday times. <laughs> and then someone asks him a question, you realize he knows what he's talking about. Um, anyway, I, I would describe him that way. And, you know, in an odd way, he is a lot like his friend and ideological uh, opponent, Cal Thomas. For example, both of them are somewhat jowly and avuncular. Somewhat. Some, this much, this much. Um, okay, this is a teaching moment. If you know what avuncular means, uh, simply an adjective describing somebody who looks like an uncle. That's true, right? <laughs> uncle. Like C.S. Lewis is often described as avuncular. The denotation of the word, that's the actual meaning, means like an uncle. Uh, but the connotation, what the word implies, I think avuncular implies jowls. I do. Uh, anyway. So even groundhogs are a bit avuncular from that point of view. But, um, but in all seriousness, you've got to know Bob Beckel from his many appearances uh, on Fox. And now, you know, he's one of the stars of this huge show called The Five, which in New York City is on at five. And the number of people on the set is five. And uh, that way you can't go wrong. You always remember, what time's that show on? Oh, yeah, five. So... Um, so he, he's, he's been doing that, and that's been a huge uh, success. Andrea Tinteros has been here a bunch of times. So it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to see that show thriving and uh, Bob thriving on that show. Of course, we've seen him many times on Hannity's program, and he's on there specifically so that Sean Hannity can use his favorite phrase, you and your liberal buddies. <laughs> right? Right. Uh, in truth, Bob has deep liberal bona fides, or fides. Um, he's not old enough uh, to have been involved in the French Revolution. Let's get that out of the way. But yes, he actually worked on the campaign of Robert F. Kennedy in 1968. That, those are deep liberal bona fides. Uh, in 1977, he joined the Department of State and became the youngest Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Carter administration. Uh, although, when you made public appearances, you'd never use the word dude, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't go that far. You weren't that young. Thank God. Um, I understand uh, Bob's work with the Carter administration uh, in, in, in state uh, led uh, to the uh, Iran hostage crisis. I, I think that's, I don't know, that's a judgment call. Maybe, maybe he would disagree. But you know what? That the hostage crisis, in turn, uh, led us to the Reagan presidency, for which thank you very much. Um, so it's true. That's true. I, I was in college. Uh, that, but, you know, we joke around, but that is impressive to have worked in the Carter administration. And it got me thinking about what was I doing when Bob Beckel was Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. And I had to think back and think back. And then I realized 
oh yeah, I remember what I was doing. I was building a tree fort. That's, uh, yeah, that's exactly. And when I wasn't doing that or studying, uh, I remember I found uh, in a parking lot a broken uh, eight-track tape. And, you know, it was free, right? So I taped it up and brought it home and listened to it over and over and over again. And what was a straight-A student listening to? Uh, it was an eight-track tape of Cheech and Chong's Big Bamboo. So, so while you were, you know, talking to ambassadors and stuff, I was memorizing lines like two lids of Lebanese blonde hash and, and that kind of stuff. Anybody remember Big Bamboo? Sister Mary Elephant? No? No? Let's make a dope deal, huh? Yeah? It's Officer O'Malley of the Narc Squad. You're busted. Remember that? That's what I was doing with my life when you were working for the administration there. Um, so, Bob, we are very thrilled to have you uh, here at this historic event. Now, before I bring you both up, I have to say I read online that, and I'm going to ask you about this, that at a Fox News event, Bob choked on a shrimp and Roger Ailes saved your life. I'm not making that up. That's online. So here's the weird thing. Here's the weird thing. If he has you killed, he's still even. That's, that's very scary. Please welcome Cal Thomas and Bob Beckel, the Socrates in the city. Come on up. Thank you. You, you got your obliged to obliged. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Cal. Hello, Eric, and thank you for your ageism jokes. You'll be hearing from my attorney. <laughs> Is your attorney an old guy, too? Oh, come on. Is that necessary? You see, this is the problem that if, if, if I'm already friends with the guy that I'm interviewing, that we never get out of the box because we're just going to be digging at each other. So let's pretend we're not friends. Okay. You're low life. Uh, <laughs> I, really, uh, I really did um, mean it when I said this is an historic event. It's certainly unprecedented for me to have two guests. I wanted to focus uh, mainly – well, I want to ask you guys about your, your friendship in a moment – but um, before I do that, the thesis of your book, um, Groundhog Day, is in, the, is in the subtitle or something. It says it's Groundhog Day in America. In Washington. In Washington, right. It used to be in America. It used to be America. Ooh. So we're starting off bitter. <laughs> We've never done that before. We usually end up there. But, uh, but tell me... Why do you say on this book, okay, the title is What Works, implying that things are broken and things aren't working in Washington. You say it's Groundhog Day in America. Why do you say it's Groundhog Day in America? Well, it's like the Bill Murray movie where he wakes up every morning, same music on the clock radio, has the same conversations with the same people, and that's what's happening in Washington. We have the same sound bites. You watch television, people saying the same thing. You're ruining America. No, you're ruining America. You're a commie. You're a fascist. You're a secular humanist. You're a Bible-thumping bigot. And the host says, and we'll be back with more civil discussion after these messages. That's not reality. It's like the political version of professional wrestling. It's fake. But it gets a lot of people tuned in. Uh, there are no relationships in Washington anymore. I mean, other than, you know, Monica Lewinsky, but... Uh, who's, you know, made a comeback. So, good for her. Looking good on Vanity Fair. So, somebody just said that's dated. And it, actually, it's not dated. That's, that's really it's newsy. Real, yeah. It's, it's hot news. Yeah, it's, it's you hot need news. to keep up. She's got a white dress. Cover of Vanity Fair. Yeah. Looking very virginal. But anyway, uh, so there are no relationships anymore. That's what I'm trying to give the damn introduction. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> These people come to Washington for two or three days. They spend most of their time fundraising. 
they don't, uh, the spouses are usually at home, and that has created other problems, as you may have noticed. Uh, they, don't, uh, they don't talk to each other, and the only time they see each other is on the floor of their respective uh, House or Senate. And, uh, you know, it's not even, even as recently as Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, they'd fight like crazy during the day on political issues, both good Irishmen, and O'Neill would come down to the White House, they'd have a couple of drinks, and they'd work things out. Nobody does that anymore. It's constant. It's unrelenting. We have a $17 trillion debt. Uh, we can't even win wars anymore. Nothing is working at any level in government. It has become completely and totally dysfunctional. And that's why I wrote the book, uh, or A Way Out of This. I've got a number of chapters on different subjects to uh, suggest how. I've got two questions. First of all, um, when you say government's getting nothing done, it's dysfunctional. As a conservative, um, aren't we supposed to believe that it's good when government does very little? Well, if it did very little, but it's doing, it's doing very little that's costing a very lot. Okay. We have a $17 trillion debt. Um, uh, just in recent uh, headlines, uh, the State Department has misplaced $6 billion. I know that happens to you all the time, right? <laughs> Look, if I can't find my wallet, I drop everything else and I search for it. But hey, it's not, it's not their money. Eh, Six billion, as Everett Dirksen used to say, a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. Uh, there is a, uh, the, the, the Citizens Against Government Waste is out with its annual pig book, appropriately named for all the pork that gets passed. Even though in 2011, Congress outlawed earmarks, uh, the Congress finds way to get around laws that passes for itself. And this is not, speaking as a conservative, no, this, this is, is not, but, I, but I'm saying this is not a partisan no. issue. The earmarks are on both sides. Right. Well, Bob and I agree on this. Let's take the defense budget. $90 million is being spent for an upgrade of an Army tank that the Army doesn't want. Why are we doing this? It's a waste of money. It's our money. The government doesn't earn it. It only spends it. And there is waste from top to bottom. Uh, Medicare, Social Security, everybody knows these need to be reformed. They can't go on like this forever. But the politicians don't want to touch it because they got a lot of people addicted to it. And, uh, you know, Paul Ryan, it had flaws, proposed a solution to the Medicare problem. And what was the response? His opponent came up with a commercial showing an actor that looked like Ryan pushing Granny over a, over a cliff in a wheelchair. Now, that's not a solid intellectual response to a solid intellectual argument. You know, Bob, the, Bob produced that commercial. Yes, he did. <laughs> He's now, done some others. I want to hear, yeah. I actually do want to hear, Bob, I mean, just a couple things. First of all, um, what do you think has led to this gridlock, if we use that cliche? What, what do you, because it's interesting that the two of you are friends, um, I mean, yeah. I want to know why. What, what do you think is happening? I, I'm still trying. I'm serious. I've done a thousand forums in my life, and I think I've never heard an introduction like that. I, <laughs> it was. Uh, I'm still getting over it. It was funny. It was long, but it was funny. Uh, but by the way, uh, that's not funny. You repeated yourself often. And by the way, are those glasses up there for some artistic reason, or can we drink water out of them? He turns them into wine later. I, you know, if you put it. Thank you. If you put it that way. Uh, what was your question again? I'm sorry. I'm still, I'm still back on the... What's the capital of North the Dakota? And the, and the um, well, I guess, you know, I, I hear Cal uh, complaining, and I agree with him. But as uh, somebody on the Democratic side... Notice I didn't say the Democrat side. 
Yes, I noticed that. I hate that when, when, when conservatives too. play that stupid game. Yeah. Um, but what is your take on it? I mean, I know because you, you know, were working with Mondale. It was a different time. What yeah. do you think has happened? Thank you. Thank you for reminding me about Mondale campaign. I managed the largest loss in the history of American politics, and I'm now on TV as a political expert. It's a great country, isn't it? Well, you know what? I don't think it was the campaign's problem. I think no, you did as well was, as you could with drinking. the dullest man yeah, in I'm politics. A, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I had not recovered at that point. Oh. Uh, the... Uh, uh, I'll tell you one of the reasons. Look, we could talk about the budget in a second because it's a classic conservative attack on, on budget deficits, which is ridiculous. Uh, but uh, well, let me just start there for a second, if I could. The United States budget is made up of defense spending and homeland security and spying, and I know a lot about those budgets. Entitlements, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and it is made up of debt, interest on the national debt. That makes up 85% of the budget of the United States, all of which has to be paid. Whether you like it or not, it's got to be paid, except for defense spending. I don't have to think we need to spend it. You know, we spend more on defense and on spying and national security than every other country in the world combined. Combined. We have 600 military bases around the world. It's the most ridiculous. The United States has been playing this role of, of sort of cop for the world for a long enough time. And do we ever, we don't even get a thank you anymore. You know, after we liberated Iraq, you know what happened? Their oil fields came up for a bid. Who got them? The Chinese and the Russians. What's that all about? But uh, in any event, I think part of the problem with, with Washington is, is simply this. When I came to Washington, I was in the campaign. Business. Wait, wait, I want to tell you what that's about before you, because I think you'll want to hear this. It's about Bush administration mismanagement. How about that? I think that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. You'll yeah. feed him. He comes up. Well, but I mean, it's, it, it is it, shameful. If you want to get into a one line back and forth, I'd be happy to do no, it. No, no, but I'm just saying when you ask what's that about, because I'd forgotten, but that's... That, that's what it's about. Well, you're right. Yeah, you're right. It's mostly a Republican problem. And we've, we've no, no, I don't that. think, but I just think that really? problem. But anyway, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, Mara, is that all right? <laughs> Yeah, when I I'm said so, sorry, I, if, we're, if I'm the jolly uncle from the basement, what are you? You're the, you're the pudgy-faced kid from upstairs who's playing in the playroom, right? When I when I said sorry, go ahead. You know what I meant by that, right? I did understand I that. Meant, it was very nice. I meant, of you. It was so very let me kind. paraphrase. I meant sorry. Yeah. Please go ahead. I've, I've uh, I, you know, I really been delighted to be invited. This this I was here when they built this building. It was very very nice. <laughs> I'm surprised they let a punk like you in here. Uh, <laughs> The, they don't uh, know I'm here. Uh, the, uh, uh, don't let the ghost get to you. But no, um, it, when I came to Washington, campaigns, I, I did campaigns, did 105 of them in my career. The average house campaign was 100, that was about, well, I, let me say roughly 150,000 bucks. The average house campaign today is 2 million. The average Senate race when I came was about a million dollars. Today it averages about 18 million dollars. The average United States senator, from the day they're elected to the day that they run for re-election, has to raise $5,000 every day, 365 days a year, in order to fund their campaigns. And that's not hard to do, because when I came to Washington also, there were 1,300 registered lobbyists. Today, there are 43,200 registered lobbyists. That's an accurate figure. Now, uh, what has happened, with, what, what has brought uh, the polarization? Well, a couple things. One. Of course, there's special interests who have an interest in protecting everything that's there. There's nothing in that budget that does not have behind it a special interest that has spent a lot of money and a lot of time influencing members of Congress to keep it there. So you've got that problem. 
people are afraid to touch entitlements because they've been the whole wind. That's been our fault. I used to do those commercials all the time. You know, the, the Social Security was running out. My mother would call me and say, Bob, is it really true that I heard the newsman say that Social Security was going to end uh, on uh, Tuesday? I said, if you and your friends go vote Democratic, it'll be back on Wednesday. Uh, so, you know, we, 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 I take responsibility for, for a lot of that, uh, our side does, of scaring people about Social Security. But the reality is that Social Security could be fixed, but nobody's got the courage to do it. And the last thing I will say is last night in, in North Carolina, there was a Republican primary. And the candidate they called the establishment, who was probably farther right, certainly than Ronald Reagan ever was, beat the Tea Party candidate. And the Republicans are very proud of that because they've got a split in their party. The Democrats have had those kinds of splits in the past, going back to Vietnam War. What has happened in America today is we've lost moderate politicians, people who could forge consensus and compromise, who actually came to Washington with the idea they were going to try to get some things done that mattered for the country. You now have a polarized ideological uh, group on both sides, very few moderates in the middle who could put things together. And then on either side, you've got these massive amounts of people with money if anybody would have told me when I started my political career that a presidential campaign would spend a billion dollars, I'd have thought they were out of their minds. Now, the last time, both of them spent a billion dollars. And, and Newt took a mortgage out of his California house to afford most of that. But the, the fact of the matter is, we, it, money has become so ingrained in politics that it has stymied uh, any kind of forward uh, thinking of any kind at all. And the ideological special interests, forget the people who lobby for tanks and all the rest of it. The, the people like the Koch brothers, and there's people on our side that, that the same thing, spend hundreds of millions of dollars to force you to be ideologically pure. And if you're not, you're faced not with a threatened uh, strong opponent from the other side, but a primary uh, in your own party. The big action in, in politics today is not a general election. Very few of those, those districts are opening. The only two things Republicans agree on with Democrats is how do you draw congressional districts. They do it to protect their own asses, and they've done a good job of it. So about 10% of those districts are available really every, every two-year cycle to, get, to move to the other side. The real problem now is a primary, either from the Democratic side to the far left or from the Republican side to the far right. The Republicans had a chance in the last two cycles to win the United States Senate back. They did not in either occasion did they do it. Why? Because they nominated some of the biggest goofballs I've ever seen in my life, including a witch from Delaware. And I could have taken Harry Reid. I could have taken Thomas out and beaten Harry Reid with no money. And they had elected they, the Republicans nominated this Tea Party woman, who I still don't think has come back from Mars. I mean, it is. And, and so they went on to lose five seats they should have won, should have won, and would have taken the Senate back. This time around, they probably have more reasonable candidates. And my guess is, as horrible as it is, they probably will take the Senate. Well, okay. So we've sketched out. Uh the problem. Now, Cal, I understand you've written a book that purports to have some answers for these problems of intransigence. Can you uh, give us some thoughts on how we move forward? Yeah, but before we do that, you mentioned something that Bob didn't address uh, on how we became friends. Uh, I take... Uh, I take that, that was saving that for the second half. But, Were you? Yeah. You mean it's going to be a second half? All right. Well, we'll save that. Well, then. you know, there All are right, always look. two halves, so one of them has That's to be true. second. All right. That's a good point. I played basketball. I should have known that. Except we had quarters then. But anyway, look, we didn't just crawl out of a cave. 
we don't have to invent the wheel or discover fire. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says there's nothing new under the sun. Everything you think has been thought before. Everything you do has been done before. So why do we repeat the same arguments and the same failed programs over and over again? One of Ronald Reagan's great lines was, the only proof of eternal life in Washington is a government program. And it's true. It's almost, Bob alluded to it, it's almost impossible to kill it because it attracts like flies, interest groups, lobbyists, and if you try to end any of it, you get the commercial of Granny going over the cliff. You don't get a serious discussion. This is primarily because we have career politicians. The founders wanted limited government. They wanted people to come from their law offices, their businesses, their farms, to serve the country for a limited time and go back to their real jobs. Now, my favorite story on this uh, is, is uh, related to my very good friend, and he was my very good friend. I respected him enormously. Did you know Cincinnati? The late, the late uh, Senator George McGovern of South Dakota. Here was a man who actually fought in a war unlike some of the neocons who want other people to fight in wars while they sit home. Uh, and he got defeated in the 1980 Reagan landslide, or as we on the right call it, the good old days, uh, when five uh, Democratic senators uh, were defeated. So George hadn't done anything other than public service since coming back from World War II, and he decided to do something totally different. He went up to Connecticut and bought an inn and he tried to run it, and in less than two years, it went bankrupt. The Wall Street Journal called him up, did an interview, wanted to know what happened. And then the only thing you need to know for what the problem is in Washington, George McGovern said, gee, if I'd known how difficult it was to run a business, I might have voted differently in the Senate. <laughs> they stay too long, folks. It's like a virus. You always hear it. Elect us, put us back in the majority, either party, and we'll, we'll be more moral and ethical than those bums who've been there too long. Nancy Pelosi said, give us back the power and we'll drain the swamp. She got the power back, she built a hot tub. Uh, it's an insular, unreal existence. They pass laws that they don't have to live under, they spend your money, they get free or discounted health care, they can pick up the phone and go to Walter Reed or Nava Medical for their physicals without waiting. Uh, it, it's an unreal world. They got discount or free parking. Uh, so how, how, do we, how do we fix this? Well, I you mean, gotta like have most... term limits. You gotta, I become a political environmentalist. Recycle trash in Congress for the same reason. Because each lift in one place begins to emit a foul smell. You gotta but... get them out. But the other thing is you've got to, you've got to pay attention between elections. They get away with all of this stuff because we're too busy with uh, other things. We're living real lives. We go. We got to take the kids or the grandchildren to the to the uh, you know the ballet lessons or the violin or the soccer games or whatever. You've got to pay attention to them. They're spending your money. They're starting wars. They're regulating your business. They're taxing your income. And if you don't think that's important, then tell me what is, and I'll come and appear before your group. Uh, the, the, we elect these people without thinking. And they only pay attention a few weeks before election, and too many people who shouldn't vote at all because they're stupid uh, vote on, vote on, and neither should, should they be allowed to reproduce, but that's another issue. Uh, they, they, they vote on that, that'll make MSNBC. We're making some news yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, well, no one has ever said things this incendiary. We've reached a new yeah, know, high yeah, watermark. Yeah, well, you started it. But anyway. Oh, yes, I did. Careful. So, no, but, but it's so still, it really uh, is we the people. 
It's not you, the government. And if you, and if you care about it, you've got to be involved in it. A constitutional republic is not the natural state of humanity. Right. As you look around the world, it's dictatorship, it's religious fundamentalism, it's denial of women's rights, it's all of these horrible things. We are an oasis in a desert of intolerance, and we have to renew our country every generation. We're only one generation away from being like them and the rest of the world. If this, you know, you can't get into shape by watching an exercise video. You've got to go to the gym and work out yourself. Uh, or you get jowls. You know something? Do, do you? Yeah, after listening to that, Prozac sales are going to go skyrocket. Well, but but what, what, what's your reaction? Well, my, my uh, let me, this, this is one of the things where Cal and I have reached common ground on. I used to be violently opposed to term limits. I now embrace it. And the reason I do is that for a long time I thought it was important to have experienced people in the Congress, we'd had enough years as historical perspective. I now have realized that people who've had enough experience have figured out how to game the system better than anybody else has. And, that, and they write the rules. That's the other part of it. And so uh, what used to be a very strong driven chairman uh, system in the House particularly is now subcommittee chairs all of whom have their own territory that they've staked out. Leadership doesn't really matter much anymore. I mean, look at John Banner. I know John for a long time. I've known him a long time. I mean, this poor bastard's got to live, live with the Tea Party. I mean, I can't... I he's, got to what? he's got to live with it? You mean he's, he's being... Have you ever spent with those people? Honest to God, it's like being at Bellevue Psychiatric. It, it is... Uh, they, I've been to speak to them. I, they invited me to speak well, no, to them. I guess my, my question is, when you mentioned Boehner, you're saying that right now... Uh, his leadership is not respected, and he's having to deal with... He, he cannot corral cats. I mean, he, look, he said this. They caught him in a, in a video back home when he was campaigning for re-election, and he, and he said, you know, he said they won't deal with immigration reform. His caucus won't. And he, and he made fun of them. He, he sort of mimicked them to cry, said, I can't deal with it, I can't deal with it. If we don't deal with immigration reform in this country, you know, it's amazing to me. The Republicans uh, have... A, incredible ability to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. It, they have come up with a way to alienate the fastest growing minority population in this country in about 10 years. And interestingly enough, Hispanics are pro-defense, they're very religious, they're very fa family value oriented, uh, they're strong believers in the police, and yet, what do the Republicans do? They call them a bunch of wetbacks that come over the, 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 from the border all the time, and they say, well, let's build a 12-foot fence. Let them build a 12-foot fence. I'll be the first guy to invest in 13-foot ladders. I mean, it is, it is time for people to stop pretending that there are 11 or 12 million people in this country who may be here illegally, but if you're on the other side of the border and you've got to feed your family, of course you're going to be here. It is time to stop this ridiculous notion of sending them back home Put them but, on a track to citizenship. Well, mean, we're, that, sli well, no, we're, we're sliding sideways because that's another. You, well, you were that, talking about term limits. That was a substantive discussion I was trying to have, but that's uh, all right. No, 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 no. I, I didn't say it wasn't substantive, but you, you originally mentioned that you'd found common ground with Cal on this issue of term limits. Yes. And I just find this interesting because the idea that you found common ground on this, this is a rare thing. It's an important thing. I, uh, as I, As I think about it and I listen to both of you, it seems... Important, And it seems like one of the things, I don't know if you mentioned it uh, in, in your book in depth, but it seems like one of those things that maybe we can get behind on, on both sides. I mean, when you uh, were talking about politicians learning how to game the system, that, that's, it's, it's clear that that's, that's yeah, what's happening. I, I'm a firm believer that there's not an issue in front of Washington, in front of the Congress, that cannot be resolved 
with people who, who, are, who are, are, like, are, are interested in actually finding solutions as opposed to finding political ground, with the exception of abortion, which I think is probably non-legislatively uh, ability to do that. Every other issue we can figure out a consensus on, including entitlements, including a lot of things, immigration reform, there's nothing that people of goodwill could not figure out how to do. The problem is that they're stacked up against that, uh, the, the ability to do that is this massive wall of money and this massive ideological uh, uh, groups in the country that make them frightened to step into that arena. And so uh, I, I have, and, and another thing, switch quickly, let's not blame Washington for all this, let's blame the people. People don't vote. You know, you know how many people, the United States Senate will, may go back Republican. You know what percentage of the American electorate who are registered voters who will make that decision after you take out that, what we know to be pure Democrats and pure Republicans that have targeting? The entire number of people who will elect the United States Senate and change it to Republicans is less than 1% of the American people. Less than 1%. Okay, well, this, this brings up, when, when you all were talking about term limits and, and talking about the fragility uh, of our form of government and how it's not the default mode for humanity, right? I, I always think of civics. In other words, the, the big issue, and I think it's roughly in the last 40 years, since the 60s, basically, we haven't taught physics, uh, civics, sorry. And so if you don't teach civics, most Americans, I'm, I'm 50, most Americans 50 and under do not understand how America works, unless they've been homeschooled, right? You look much older, by the and, way. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's my goal. Did you get your ARP card yet? <laughs> did, did you didn't get your ARP card? Let me be the first one. I want to say tonight, that it's, it's, thank you for having me here. I'm going to give you a lifetime membership at AARP. You'll have it next week. <laughs> You're now that's a liberal organization. Board. I'm not interested. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I, in all seriousness, so... The idea, this is my thinking, is that most Americans of, of my age and younger don't understand how the founders set it up. And so if you don't understand, I mean, we understand that America is not just a country with borders. It's not an ethnicity. It's an idea. And unless the people get that, then, you know, I mean, the, the idea of... teach it in the schools anymore. Well, well that's what I, I'm when saying. I was, when I was in uh, middle school and high school, you had a little section in the book on uh, how a bill becomes a law, Right. Now, it's how a bill becomes a law. Step number one, hire a lobbyist. I mean, that's, that's the way it is. And, well, the, the, all spending is supposed to originate in the House of Representatives, right? I mean, constitutionally, yes. But hire a lobbyist. Get lawyers. How many are on K Street, you say now? 43,000? 43, 43,000. Well, I, I mean, that's still a separate issue. The issue is that Americans don't understand how a bill becomes well, a law. Well, that's their You've fault. You've got to start there. Well, first there. of all, again... It is, it is a participatory system. They're not participating. They didn't participate in elections in North Korea, although it was 100%, right? Under Saddam Hussein, it was like 99, and he killed the 1% or didn't vote for him. Uh, this is a unique system. You it don't think, you don't think Pelosi and Obama want to kill the 1%? No. It, uh, no. That was a joke. That was yeah, a soundbite, stupid that, joke. No, I don't, I don't see people like that. Uh, Nancy Pelosi used to live next door to me. And uh, I'd see her the first thing in the morning. I always greet her and say, Nancy, you're looking good today. Uh, I said, I'm sure I'm one of the few people to comment on your appearance because I'm not a feminist. She loved it. And we finally moved. She said, 
why did you move? I said, well, we felt we were running down your property values. But look, I don't hate anybody for their politics. I have friends on all sides. But we, we don't know each other anymore. One of the things that Bob and I do on our common ground thing on the lecture circuit, we encourage people to, to sit down and get to know other people of different parties or persuasions or ideologies. We know people by labels now. Uh, we are left-wing, right-wing, Republican, Democrat, uh, religious, secular, uh, you know, hyphenated. Uh, I, one of the few things I've ever agreed with Whoopi Goldberg on was when she said on The View once, I'm not an African-American, I'm an American. Well, God bless you. That's what we used to be. This is some great melting pot. We all came from someplace and we became Americans. We, we adopted our history, even if we didn't always live it. We, we, we wanted to be like each other and have freedom and all of these other things. And now we're all divided. It's instead of out of many, one it's out of one many. And this is one of the things that's producing our dysfunction. We're seen as labels and groups. Okay, but, but we're still talking about the problem. In other words, I, I want to figure out what, what might we do. In other words, if, if we think about where's the root of the problem, I mean, we know that voters tend not to be educated about what they're voting about, and I think that ties into what I was saying about civics, that you basically have people that don't, they just don't understand it, so they vote on do I like the guy or don't I like the and guy. That's, that's, be, that's being somewhat cynical, which is surprising hearing you say it's somewhat cynical. <laughs> uh, but uh, the reality Wait, how, is... No, how is it cynical? Seriously. They, what, seriously. Um, you know, going back to a civics textbook is not going to cure the problems of the American electorate. Uh, participation is going to do that. And one of the problems is that the average turnout, as I said, primaries dictate really the ideological framework of Washington. The average turnout for Republicans in primaries is 15%. The average turnout among Democrats is 16%. And those are the ideologically driven Republicans and Democrats. And so you wonder why you get people who are by the far left or far right. And it is that, the, the fact is that people uh, have decided that somehow everybody else can do it. Everybody else will go out and vote. Well, it's their fault. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you get what you, what, you, what you supposedly pay for or, or, or lack thereof by not voting. I mean, I, I have no patience for people who complain about the politics and government who don't vote. That's right. I have no patience for it. I, I mean, screw them. I mean, it, it's, 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 they, they get what they get, except they sit back and they, they moan about it. And, and I, just, I, I just literally have no patience for it. I, if we needed to have a lesson, you want the best civics lesson in, that you could possibly have was the 2000 presidential election. Now, I happen to think and will always believe that that election was stolen and the Supreme Court participated in it. But Cal doesn't agree with that, fine. It's over, it's done, George Bush was president, we had a, uh, an illegal war in Iraq, but nonetheless. Uh, the, those, but it came down to 362 votes in an entire country with a turnout of about 130 million, I think. Now, uh, that it tells me an awful lot. And if you look at races now around the country, uh, they are usually very, very close or landslides. There are very few votes that are 55-45 anymore, the way we used to see them. Now you see razor-sharp, thin votes uh, margins for the Democrats. That's why I said that 1% of the American people will decide if there's going to be a Republican Senate. Because I can tell you right now, the number of people who will vote Democratic in North Carolina, because I'm, I know their history, and we have a thing called targeting. We know how many are going to vote for the Democrat. We know how many are going to vote for the Republican. And the ones in the middle who are the persuadable voters end up being in North Carolina about 4%. And of those 4%, 
they will, uh, those who will vote for the winner, eventually it becomes a Republican, it will get down in North Carolina, a state as big as that state is, probably 20,000 people will decide the outcome of that election. Now, I, I just, uh, because people want to participate. You, you know, you, but what can we do? This is the question. Right. I want to know what let both me, of you think about what we can do. What we've seen from my grandparents' uh, generation who lived through a Great Depression and a World War is a not-so-subtle sh- shift. When I was growing up, we penalized and discouraged the things we said we want less of and subsidized and encouraged the things we said we wanted more of. Now it's flipped. We penalize and discourage the things we say we want more of and subsidize and encourage the things we want less of and are shocked to find we get more of what we want less of and less of what we want more of. We now turn to government as a first resource instead of a last resort. It's a perversion of the 23rd Psalm. The government is my keeper I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of poverty, the Health and Human Services Department will be there comforting me with food stamps and AFTC payments. We have, we, government has become a god it has become a deity. We turn to it. We, we want to be protected. We, we don't look to ourselves. The idea of personal accountability and responsibility for your own money, for your own life, for your own kids is out the window. It takes a village now, and the village is government bureaucrats. And so when you switch, you make that conversion, then you do something to the politics, the economy, uh, the social fabric, and to every other. Look at the people we admire. Who do we admire? Look at the checkout stands, the, the, the covers of People magazine. You've got Lady Gaga. You've got Monica Lewinsky on Vanity Fair. You got all, what do these people contribute to, to uh, promoting the general welfare? Nothing. They're celebrities. Well, I think most people in this room would, would agree with you uh, uh, about this, I mean, especially about the last part, what you're saying. But I, I'm still wondering what is the way out? What well, you start can with we... yourself. It's bubble up. It's not trickle down. You make, you, you know, you get married before, this is going to sound very old-fashioned, but being a, you know, an avuncular person with jowls, uh, the, uh, you start with yourself. You get married before you have kids. You stay married. You, you, you develop character and integrity and virtue and all those things that you don't catch naturally any more than you catch table manners naturally or learn to look both ways before you cross the street naturally. You have to be told and taught we become so afraid of interest groups now that we've lost the whole concept of objective truth, right from wrong. You don't want to offend anybody, so you don't want to... There was a story on Drudge this afternoon. A guy in Florida, because, you know, gay marriage is now being approved all over America, uh, he wants to marry his computer. I'm not making this up. Well, what's wrong with that? Who's going to tell him no? He might be offended and go out and shoot up the post office. Hey, but you know what? Have you seen that computer? I know. It's a, yeah, <laughs> there's, some practical, there's some practical answers to this. The, the largest turnout in voter uh, by state uh, in, in a state was Minnesota when Jesse Ventura oh. became governor of Minnesota. Can we now, find common ground we on can, him? We can, oh, yeah. We'd never find common ground. There's a boy that did too much juice. There's yeah, no question right. about that. And I was a football player. I did a lot of juice. It probably shows. But uh, the, the reason that they had a turnout like that, you had to register your car on Election Day, and you had to do it at a polling place. The only way you could get your car registered. Now, it may take that kind of bludgeoning to get the American people who will not be without their cars, that if your car is up for registration renewal, you must get it done after you vote, or you don't get your registration. Now, that worked in Minnesota. And now you may say that's a little, it says a little bit of a, a totalitarianism to it. So what? I mean, when you talk about people who wish we have our same values, you know why I'm a liberal? It's very simple. 
tonight some baby, white baby, is going to be born to a, a wealthy couple on the Upper East Side of New York. And tonight some black child is going to be born to a crack mother in Harlem. If anybody believes that those two children have an equal shot at life, you're kidding yourself. The reason I'm a liberal is that, that mother may never should have had that baby, but she did. It wasn't the baby's fault. And until that baby's 18, we have a responsibility to feed it, to educate them, to clothe that person, to give it, that baby the best environment, the best protection we could possibly give them. And if the mother can't pay for it, you pay for it. It's okay, as simple now, as that. Now, now we're going to go. If, you don't, if you're not willing to pay for it, that's, then that's your problem. Maybe you want to live yourself like that? Fine. Do you think that, you think that what, you think those people have a fair shot of life? Do you think that that baby, those two babies, are going to have equal outcomes? I think. It's a joke. No, 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 but I think I want that, to agree with him on this because uh, I do agree that it was not the baby's fault, and a pro life position would embrace that. But the difference would be that I want to make sure that baby grows up to be able to stand on his or her own and be self-sustaining, not to be addicted to government I, programs. And that's I mean, I think that's, that's one thing if you're that's, looking for common ground. That's, that's a, uh, it's an interesting and wonderful thought, and I agree. Look, I want to take, take responsibility here for the left, but we made a terrible mistake. We did the Great Society programs, and we did a lot of the welfare programs because we did it for all the best intentions. We thought that by giving people housing, giving them food, uh, giving them welfare assistance, that we were doing them a favor. It was the right way to give them a leg up. In retrospect, as a liberal, I look back at that and realize that we've bred three generations of dependent people. And it is time for that to change. And, and the, the people that need to change that are liberals, frankly. I mean, we don't, we're the ones that wanted there for, as I said, the best intentions. But we, we ended up with, with the wrong outcomes. However, they are the outcomes. They're not the reason necessarily that all these things go wrong in the inner city, right. but we contributed to that. Right. Now, it is not going to be done overnight. And in the meantime, you're going to have babies born to crack mothers. You're going to have another generation or two that are going to have to be helped. Or you can imprison them and pay a fortune to keep them in prison and then send them back out and they become career criminals. I mean, the idea of, of, of uh, the, you know, the population of this country, uh, at one time or another, a third, two, excuse me, two-thirds of African-Americans are in the penal system somewhere or another, males. Now, that is, it is an indictment of the worst order. And so unless we begin to realize that what we've done here are put people in, they live in, in ghettos where there is no work, because big businesses take their, their businesses, are afraid of labor unions. They take it to the South, where a bunch of rednecks decide they'll work for $4 an hour. And they won't hire union people up here because they say, oh, my God, unions are driving us in the ground. There are nobody's a union anymore. 9% of the country's a union. I've stopped, I, mean, I want to stop people complaining about unions. It's all I hear. Unions, unions. There are no unions anymore. I'm a union member. But then my dad was. This is the Union for, League Club. <laughs> As I said, I'm a union member. You know, my, I, I helped build a part of that. The, the, I was a carpenter. <laughs> you noticed my work. It's very let me well let me follow up on something there because Bob Bob has a great heart. He really does. And the and the and the way we the way we understand each other is to build relationships and get to know people. But the number one thing, Eric, and it's in my book. Uh, and it's nothing original, because I said it's Ecclesiastes, nothing new under the sun. The number one thing that would improve the lives and the lot of the poor and the disadvantaged is education. And edu the public education system in America is the last reigning monopoly. And I'm old enough to remember George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door in Alabama trying to keep African Americans out. 
Well, now you have another version of that with politicians standing in the schoolhouse door of failed schools, trying to keep them in because they get the political contributions from the teachers' unions. This is an immorality, because if you do not help a child get a good education, that is his or her ticket to a better life. Bob, would you, would you agree with that? We, we, uh, we have found common ground on that. Listen, I've, I've been a, a long time, uh, I've worked for a long time with both the AFT and the NEA. The problem is that they both now have one thing in mind, and that is the retirement of their members and the protection of their members. I think if you're in a failed school system to be defined, how you define that is a very important question, but that there ought to be a voucher system. Children ought to be allowed to go to better schools, uh, and they should not be stopped because a group of teachers may lose their job. I also think, and I said this at the NEA convention, you got booed off the, the well, it didn't boo me off because they weren't big enough, but uh, <laughs> that, that there ought to be merit tests for teachers. I mean, is there any reason why... You got booed for that? Huh? I got booed. At oh, the yeah. NEA. You want to try... You go and try that. You go try to tell them to take merit tests. Before you get any tenure, you have to pass a series of tests. I mean, you know, the education system in this country... And, and it's made worse because it's become... It, it, there's a lot of education in this country, public education, that's good. You know, we're so quick to damn it all because we look at it through the perspective of New York City or Washington, D.C. Out in the country... There are excellent schools, public schools, excellent teachers, people who do a very good job. The problem is there are isolated pockets where we are now breeding children who have no education, have no place to find a job as because of that education and because most of Business America took their jobs away from, from that area and because we on the left decided to give them a free pass. Now, you put all that together and you've, that, you, that is the, you bring that together and you've got yourself a convicted felon. And that's one of the problems we've got. So I agree with Cal on that. I, I think if you could take a child away, if we're up to me, I, you know, I still remember the days of orphanages. I would take these children and take them away and put them in an orphanage someplace because they're much better off. You know, these guys up in Harlem and in, in South Bronx, and I, I spent a lot of time working uh, with, uh, al I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been sober. We're about to celebrate my 15th year. Uh, I work with alcoholics. Thank you. I work with alcoholics and a lot of gangbangers, and I listen to these guys, and they're so proud of the fact that they go around, they've got six kids. They don't even know who the mothers are, right? And they take no responsibility for them. When I say to them, look, can you possibly look yourself in the mirror in the morning, knowing you've got a child out there, and you're doing nothing to help them? And they can't even comprehend that. It's a value problem. And, and part of that is, you know, the average gangbanger in America travels exactly one square mile from their home? That's it. They have no other frame of reference except for that. I started a school with a group of other people called City Lights in Washington, D.C. for the kids who were thrown out of the school system in Washington, which takes a lot to do. They had 95% truancy until they came to City Lights. We had 95% uh, success rate to have them come to school. We also allowed them to bring their weapons with them. They had to check them at the door because they're not about to leave their home without being defended because they couldn't walk through a certain neighborhood. We recognize that. But the fact of the matter is they got an education, and, it, and some of them have done very, very well. But you've you, you got to understand the mentality of these people is, is something that it, it, it's almost mind-boggling, and yet they absolutely firmly believe it. And the crack mothers firmly believe that it's perfectly right to have children. Uh, and uh, it, it just it, it never ceases to amaze me as a liberal uh, that the people that we've, there are people we've tried to help uh, are the people who uh, are have turned against what we thought was help 
and have used it for existence and subsistence and abuse. Uh, you know, but you know, take food stamps. Food stamps are not just abused in the ghetto. We're paying three times more for food stamps now than we did five years or six years ago. Most people on food stamps are white. Uh, we keep talking about blacks and minorities. Go to West Virginia, where I've been many times during campaigns, and you'll see abuse of food stamps and government programs. It's not just a black issue. It's a white issue as well. But the fact is, it's there, and you can get it. And unless we make it somehow the responsibility of that person to do something to get it, then we have made a terrible mistake. And as I say, it'd be a culprit here. We, we, we made that mistake, and we were wrong. We had to correct it. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of stuff here. I want to get to the question uh, that, that Cal brought up a while ago. Um, how did you two become friends? It's an extraordinary thing. You obviously disagree on most things. No, there, no, there are a few no, things. No? No, Just tonight, I guess. Uh, uh, <laughs> but I think that um, it is pretty extraordinary that, uh, that you are that you're friends and that you write a column uh, twice a month on Common Ground. You've written a book on it. How did you become friends? Well, let me, let me uh, uh, start with that. I uh, was somebody who had no faith. I, I didn't believe in God. If I couldn't touch it, feel it, if it didn't have bones, it didn't exist. Uh, I, I went through a period of my life just after I got sober. Uh, where I was going through a divorce. I was married to a professional golfer for six years. She gave me four lessons in six years. It cost me half a million a lesson. Uh, <laughs> and you don't know fear. You've seen the five iron, five iron hands of a professional golfer at two in the morning. Uh, but I was, I was being uh, extorted uh, by uh, a group of people for a lot of money. I went from making about $800,000 a year to $6,000 a year. I went to work for the government printing office starting at 11 o'clock at night till 7 in the morning for 13 bucks an hour until I could get out from underneath this what was believed to be that I really did participate in some sort of criminal act, which I was actually helping the police, and there was a gag order. But having said that, so here I am uh, in the middle of the most difficult period of my life trying to stay sober, and the very first person that came to my assistance is sitting on this stage with me tonight, with all due respect, it was not you, uh, and... And, and Cal came to me not because um, I, a Democrat or Republican or anything else, but because we knew each other from television. You know, we'd been on panels together. But also he asked me if I had any faith. And I said no. And he said, would you mind if I send you some things? And he did. He sent me some books. And it took some time. But, um, but I came to faith. And he helped me get there. And he was a vessel for me to do that. Um, and we've been through a lot together. Uh, and I just... Uh, to us, you know, politics, can we get these things resolved? Yes. If it were up to us, we could. Uh, but what is more important than any of the rest of this in politics is friendships you have in your life. I mean, I look back now, uh, and if people ask me what's the, the things that I might be the most important lessons I learned in my life is, one, stay healthy if you can. I abused my body for a very long time, and I'm paying a price for it. Uh, to keep your friends as close as you possibly can and hug them that much closer because they will be the people who are there when you need them. And to keep people who are, who are older around the campfire at the front of the campfire. Uh, that's one of the problems that we have in this country. We, and this is not suggesting Cal's a lot older than I am, but, uh, but I, I've taken a lot of wisdom from him over the years. And, but at times of difficulty, when I needed to pull somebody close, 
including being on the verge of going back out of drinking, which would have been the end of my life, uh, literally. Uh, I mean, I have been shot. I've been stabbed. I've been in three car wrecks where everybody else died except for me. Uh, I had a gun pulled at me in a, in a bar. The, the bullet didn't go off the first one. The second one, somebody grabbed him from behind. There was a three-foot hole in the ceiling. And at that point, I decided it was probably time for me to get sober. Uh, but, I, and, and I, but I didn't believe. I, I thought this was all a chance. It was luck. It wasn't luck. It wasn't luck. It was grace. I mean, I, I, the reason things don't bother me all that much, I don't take too much interest in, in all these petty arguments that go on. Every day for me is a free one. It's one I shouldn't have had. And it's a pass that every day, by grace, I'm here. And if I had to list the things that mattered most in my life, it would be my faith, my family, and my friends, specifically the ones sitting here with me tonight. Well... You're going to leave here tonight with a totally different view of Bob, which is why I like to have him along. When you heard he was going to be here, you defined him by labels. And now you've seen something of his heart. He's a wonderful guy. He's my closest friend. I love him. Now, my role model for this is a man named Jesus of Nazareth, who some of you know dined with Republicans and sinners. Those were the early Democrats. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but I have many, many friends on the political left. Uh, one of my favorite writers, people ask who I read. Well, until he left the New York Times, uh, my favorite writer was Frank Rich. He's still one of my dearest friends. We both grew up in Washington. We both played clarinet. We both went to the National Theater. He is a ticket taker, me as a patron. Uh, we both had KLH stereos, which were the, the cool stereos to have in that, in that period of our lives. How do I know these things? Because I got to know him. You look past the labels and the politics, and you see the worth of the individual. That's what we're missing by demonizing people. I like to say Bob isn't on the other side. The Taliban are on the other side, if you want to put somebody on the other side. Bob is my friend. He's my fellow American. Both of our fathers served in World War II. I tell this story at the end of our lectures when we go out together. My wife and I visited Normandy in France some years ago, and my, one of my uncles was in D-Day. It was in Omaha Beach, and I went over there and stood there to identify with that greatest generation. And I went to the American Cemetery, and you see all of those grave markers. Many crosses, some stars of David lined up. The names, American names, Smith, Jones, some with ethnic background, Rodriguez, Goldberg. You know something? They, didn't, they had their birth and death dates, but they didn't have an R and D next to their names. They weren't fighting for or against Franklin Roosevelt. They were fighting for an American idea, an ideal, really. America, as Eric said earlier, has always been an idea in search of an ideal. We've made mistakes. We tolerated slavery. We denied African-Americans their legitimate rights, which were endowed by their creator, not granted by government. We denied uh, women's rights, full equality for many years. We've tried to redress those things. We're still on the way. Uh, we haven't ended. But unlike many other nations in the world, we're trying. We're, we're, we're pursuing the impossible dream. Maybe it's not impossible. But if we don't get it right, who else is? As, as uh, Robert F. Kennedy quoted, if not us, who? If not now, when? And I think that's a... 
I think that's a wonderful question that every generation can ask. We've got to get away from this business of seeing each other as enemies. We're not enemies. We're friends. We're Americans. We're the best nation on earth because we care more about other people than almost any other country in the world. And we get back to practicing that and, and, and looking at our fellow Americans as uh, brothers and sisters, then I think we're going to be a lot stronger nation, which is why tonight I am announcing my candidacy. Oh, no, excuse me. Get carried away, I'm sorry. Could I, add, could I add one thing to that? One of the things about calling people names and identifying them as left or right What's happened now is they get awarded for being polarizers. They get voted on because they're polarizing. When the day comes in this country when people are punished for being polarizers, when if they don't sit down at a committee hearing because they don't want to sit with a Democrat or Republican, when they do something purely out of ideologically driven uh, set of thinking from some right-wing or left-wing group, they need to be punished for that. Instead, they're awarded for it. And they're awarded for it because, as I said, turnout t tends to be on those ideological extremes. But as, an Ameri as Americans, as citizens, we have got to come to the conclusion here that if you do something that is not in any way uh, interrupts the development of legislation of any kind that's helpful to this country, if you do it for ideological grounds, uh, because you're a polarizer, you're going to get voted against. And if these guys ever would understand something, and women, it's good politics to get things done. Yeah, that's that's right. the thing they don't seem to understand. It's good politics. And if they could go out and campaign on that, instead they go out and campaign against the other person. I mean, I used to make TV ads. I mean, I, I mean, I, some of mine were just horrible. Uh, and, uh, but it is now uh, uh, coming to the point. You know, I started campaigns, 10% of our ads were negative and 80% or 90% were positive. Excuse me, my math is, I went, to, I went to school on a football scholarship. I got, I had 2.001. That's because I was in an affair with a French teacher and she gave me a passing grade. Uh, but uh, about 10%, about maybe 15% were negative. Now it's 85% are negative. People don't run positive campaigns anymore. Well, I mean, when we talk about the proverbial day of uh, Tip O'Neill sitting down with Reagan after they'd done the work of the day, then they went off and their friends and they worked things out. Um, I, I still am trying to understand, what is it that happened? Uh, is, is it, because it didn't just happen, it's not because of the Tea Party, this is something that's been happening for quite a long time. Was it, was it the Clinton era? Was that where no, the no, real no. polarization? No, 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 no. It goes, part of it's fundraising. I, I sat in a fundraising meeting once in the 80s, and I asked a guy, why don't you ever send out a positive letter with what you're doing with people's contributions? And he looked at me and he said, you can't raise money on a positive. Now, how cynical is that? So you've always got to have an enemy. You've always got to stir the pot. Uh, you've always got to uh, label somebody. And I think television has egged that on, particularly the 24-hour news cycle. Yeah. You've got to constantly have new stuff that you're throwing in there. And whether it's accurate or not, you just throw it out there and wor worry about it later. Yeah, others to throw into that. I think in many ways, it's what a great contribution to, uh, to, to the world the Internet has been. It's also been one of the worst contributors to the, to the decay of politics. I mean, people go to uh, particular Internet sites to get their food for the day. Yeah. And they always go, if they're conservative, they go to the right-wing blogs, if they're liberal, they go to the left-wing blogs. That, the money, I think the Clinton thing did contribute to part of that. Newt Gingrich, who I've known for a long time, that Newt Gingrich is the only man I know who's never had an unspoken thought in his life. <laughs> but 
it was it was Newt Gingrich and Charlie Rangel who came together to do the apartheid, anti-apartheid legislation against South Africa. The chances of that happening today are virtually non-existent. I did the Panama Canal treaties when I was in the White House. We needed 67 votes in the United States Senate to get that done. We couldn't get 67 votes for Mother's Day today uh, in the Senate. And so, and what's going to happen, by the way, is, I mean, it's already gridlocked. Nothing gets it's done. You know, they go in there, and, and Harry Reid is as much responsible for this as anything else. They don't do any business. They start the roll call at, at 9 o'clock in the morning. They finish it at 8 o'clock at night. And they've finally gotten through all 100 senators, you know. And, it, it, and things just don't get done. Uh, and so what do they do? We end up with continuing resolutions. And continuing resolutions are one of the reasons that you have, by, almost by definition, a continuing resolution, because so many government programs, particularly entitlements, are tied to the inflation index. By doing a continuing resolution, you're automatically increasing the deficit. It is not about Barack Obama or Obamacare that's causing this deficit or his stimulus package, which I think, frankly, saved America from a depression. You'll probably disagree with that, but I, believe, I always will believe that to be true. But in the end, we're dealing with a government that is paralyzed and a paralyzed government sitting on top of a budget that is linked to inflation is a sure sign that we're going to, at some point, hit a point of no return. And uh, I don't worry about the Chinese. I, mean, I think the Chinese are the single greatest threat to the United States as it is. Uh, I'm not afraid to say things. I've already got the Muslims. I got a fatwa against me for, to, for talking about Muslims being, uh, you know, when, uh, that's right. Don't worry about it, Cal. I'm, they're after me, just me. I'll get into that by subject about Muslims, but I probably won't have to, need to get into that right now because I'm already in so much trouble. It, it doesn't uh, uh, do me much any good. But I I only suggested that uh, they were a bunch of cowards or they agreed with the radical Islamists because they keep their mouths shut. Have you ever noticed that about Muslims? When something happens, when a terrorist activity happens, whether it's Boston Marathon or 9-11 or some other outrageous, horrible thing like these children being kidnapped in Nigeria, have you noticed one head of one Muslim country that has stood up and said it's wrong? Have you seen one imam, one cleric? We haven't seen that. It is a, it is a religion. And so I said it on my show, The Five, many times. You either are going to stand up. If 85% of you are moderates, then let's hear from you. And if you're not, that means only one of two things. You either agree with what these people are doing or you're cowards. And I think, frankly, most of it's the latter. Uh, and if it takes a Christian to have to say that, and I have been, I've been at death threats, I've had all kinds of things, I don't really care about that. As I said, I should have been gone a long time ago. It, so it to me, it's, it's great. So if I got, and if, if it's true, if you die and you go to heaven in the 77 virgins, I might convert before I go. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, you know, you can't, uh, I don't know how we got on that subject. How, how did we get on that subject? I, I completely forgot. Well, here's, here's what I was going to ask before. I totally forgot. Uh-oh. Yeah, you'll never have two oh, people man. again, right? This yeah. was, no, wait a minute. We have, to, we have to come back here. Where, where were we? There was Just before you went on to the Muslim 72 thing. virgins is where no, we no, 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 no. Someone in the audience will help us. Oh. Right before you brought up the Muslim. No, I, I, what I was saying was that there is a, the, the process here of a, of a polarized government with nothing getting done mm. is leaving us with a status quo that every year increases by 1% or 2%. Okay, right, that's and right. There are never right. any cuts done. People talk about cuts. They're not really cuts. Uh, and we well, now, wait, let me just hang, hang on for a second. Because when yeah. you say that, right, because I'm, I'm trying to understand this, the people um, on, the, on the hard right fiscally, mm -hmm. okay, who, who are, 
I mean, you have to understand that that comes from anger at this situation. In other words, they are, and Hannity, Sean situation? Hannity is one of them. The idea that, that nobody seems willing to shout stop. It must stop. Well, then, if they're willing to shout stop, let's say stop to the United States military, let's say stop to the War Powers Act, let's say you know, the Patriot Act, and what it does to the abuse of the American people. I mean, the right is very quick, quick to jump on people who are on welfare, but they are not willing to jump on the FBI or the NSA for spying on us uh, because they sit back mutely and go along with that. The fact is that I have no tolerance for people on the right who are not willing to step forward and say these are abuses we need to deal with. Anybody who can sit and, and feel comfortable with the National Security Agency looking into our phones and into our emails and not say something about right. it is about as un-American as I can imagine. But, I think, but I'm thinking that... <laughs> but I, I really... Um, in other words, I... I believe there are a number of people on the right who have spoken against that. It's, it's, I'm would, one of them. Well, I'm you, one of them. You, Cal has. No, that's wrong. Not many have. You don't, if you listen to people on the right, I, I have to. That's the problem. I work at Fox. I mean, we talked. Uh, I, know you made, I know you made a comment about Snowden, right? Right? You made sort of a, 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 an incendiary comment about Snowden. No, that I, we don't I have the death penalty. No, no. I, I, I don't believe in the oh, death penalty. Oh, not Snowden. I'm sorry. The other guy who is Assange. Julian Assange. Julian Assange. Didn't you? No. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. <laughs> you're, you're still building that tree fort and a, a hammer oh, fell on your head. man. We never got that built. You he know. was watching The View. Man, no, 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 man. I was just like, I was thinking about being high. I never got high. But that Cheech and Chong thing, it just took over my life. Um, well, I, I did I guess, get high, and I know you got high, because to, nobody to, could have described it that well if you hadn't been high. Get by, no, 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 no. That's... I promise you. I promise. I have a Greek father. I would be dead if he if he caught me with a yeah. with so much as a roach. Okay. okay. We'll but, go, look, you're, you're the host here. I'll go along with that bullshit. No, I, it, it's it. not. It's not. I guarantee you, it's not. Um, but um, what what you say about the NSA and you say about those kinds of things? I, I guess I just want to. Maybe I'll ask you, Cal. Is that true? In other words, the, the people. Maybe it's Paul Ryan. Who 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 is being uncompromising? in terms of the fiscal stuff and saying that we will not uh, raise the, the debt ceiling, we will not... Who, who are those people that, that um, Bob would, would say they're guilty of that? Um, are, are, is it true that, that they will not talk about uh, whatever, gutting our side of the thing? Is that the case? Yeah, everybody has their own little uh, fiefdoms, and uh, Bob is right. There are no cuts. There are sometimes, though not as often as before, reductions in the rate of increase. Uh, that's one of those little Washington-isms that we hear about. So the, uh, the people who want to be fiscally responsible are known as fiscally responsible with our tax dollars say, well, we've cut whatever, fill in the blank. But they've really just cut the rate of increase. Now, Bob and I agree on this other thing. We think that every federal agency ought to be required to... Uh, validate its very existence every few years. Uh, everyone should come before, in public, the Congress, every, every cabinet agency, every agency of government has a piece of authorizing legislation or charter that created it. And along with that legislation was a purpose for its creation. If it's living up to that purpose, if it is doing well and is being fiscally responsible, we keep it. If it's not, we get rid of it. Now, Bob, you agree with this? 
I, yeah, I certainly I agree with that. I mean, that, I, I, just much I mean, we've had examples of this work. The BRAC Commission, yep. when nobody could get military bases closed because everybody didn't want to close the ones in their district, which were useless old relics. So what they finally had enough sense to do was to put a commission together, and they had a whole list of, of bases to be closed, and you couldn't amend it. It was either yes or no vote. And, and every one of them, as far as I know, was passed. <laughs> Otherwise, if you allow people to go with amendments, they cut deals, they'd save a, an archaic old military base that was not necessary. We could do that on other things. And, and there's no reason why we can't do it. Are there, I mean, no, are there no politicians? I mean, if, if, if I had to ask either of you, I will ask either of you, anyone you can think of in the political landscape who, who has the kind of courage uh, Willingness uh, to to do anything along these lines. Anybody you can think of? Who who out there is is? Well, the governors. It's happening at the state level. It's a chapter in my book of what's happening on 30 states. Do you balanced, have a new book out? Yes, thank you. Uh, balanced budgets. Uh, people living within their means. In Indiana, under government Mike, uh, Governor Mike Pence and uh, Mitch Daniels before him, they're actually rebating tax dollars to the citizens because the government doesn't need the money. Now imagine that happening in Washington. Uh, the difference is that the people there, the governors, are closer to the people than the folks in Washington. I mean, in Washington, they, it, 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 again, it's an alternative universe. It doesn't operate according to any standard that the rest of us are familiar okay, with. Okay, so Bob, now, when we talk about, you know, things, the federal government becoming bigger and state governments becoming smaller and less powerful, most people typically would think that's a, that's a liberal idea, right? I mean, what, what, what would you say about that's that? That's not necessarily the case. I mean, it, it, federalism is federalism. I mean, we, we, uh, I grant to the states, uh, until and unless they abuse the Constitution of the United States, as was the case of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, civil rights. my dad worked with Dr. King for eight years. He was with Dr. King the day he was killed. Uh, I was in the second wave of Freedom Riders in the South. In that case, would I turn over the uh, future of black Americans to southern states at that point? Absolutely not. Then the federal government needed to do it. Well, right. Okay, but there are okay. cases now, like in, that in we would all agree in, on. In right. things, in, when it comes to things like education, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that states are in a better position to know what's important in education than the federal government is. And so that you're against this common core thing? The common core thing, I think, is ridiculous. I think testing is a bad idea. I think George Bush's what, that no child left behind is a bad idea. Uh, all they're doing is getting these, these teachers, are getting these kids ready to pass, pass uh, the test so they get more money. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the idea that, that somehow or another that all the wisdom resides in Washington and out in the state, there are a bunch of bunkins. It's not true. Some of the most creative things have happened out there, as Cal pointed out. Democrats and Republicans. There's some great mayors who've done some things that have been rather remarkable. You say, who is on the landscape that could do that nationally right now? I can't think of somebody. That's a sad commentary, but I can't think of somebody. I mean, I think if I, if I think that there's somebody, this would drive my uh, boss here at the five crazy, but and probably a lot of you, but if there's one person who probably is in a position to bridge the differences, it's Hillary Clinton. <sighs> I knew it. That's well, fine. no, no, I, I'm actually interested in hey, hearing look, you say that. Look, I have, to, I have to defend Barack Obama every day, okay? Right, 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 right. <laughs> Some days I feel like the only fire plug at the Westminster dog show. Oh, wow, so, wow. Uh, it's, well, uh, Bob, Bob, but when you say that, when you say that, because it's perfectly likely that, that she'll be your next president, I have to ask you, what, what is it about her that, you, do you see, well, I mean, because as somebody who's conservative, I, I'm not so sure, I would think, I mean, it's so funny because I never thought um, that Barack Obama would be infinitely more 
ideologically liberal than Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. So he took us all b by surprise on that. But the thing is that I think, yeah, most conservatives think of, of Hillary Clinton as a liberal ideologue who's simply better at getting things done. She's canny. Um, so it, it's hard, I think, uh, for people on the right to believe what you're saying. Why do you say what you're saying about because Hillary Clinton? I've talked to a number of Republican senators who served with her on the Armed Services Committee who universally said she was the best person on that committee to bridge differences. The two times they've had fully appropriated and authorized pieces of legislation on the defense budget has been because Hillary Clinton put them together. Hillary Clinton is not a liberal. That notion, for me as a liberal, she's way too much to the center for me. But, I, but that's, leaving that aside, I think in the, in the, she knows enough about government and enough about deal-making that if you were to ask Orrin Hatch off the record who he thought was the best senator he served with, he would say Hillary Clinton. And it, now, whether she could translate that into the presidency, I don't know. But I look on the, on the Republican side, and I, you know, Jeb Bush probably, I think, is the strongest candidate by far that we would face, by far. And I'm hopeful. I happen to be for, for, for Teddy Cruz myself. Um, I, I'm, I'm, for, uh, I'm for a ticket of Cruz and Palin. That's my, uh, wow. That's my ideal team. Uh, Wait, the what about Palin Cruz? Like Cruz. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a liberal Democrat, you want Palin the, Cruz, not yeah, Cruz yeah, Palin. Right. The, the idea that, that Ted Cruz could command the, the stage of media for three months for that idiot to get that kind of publicity is beyond no. comprehension to me. I know he's a smart guy in some ways. You know, you know idiot is a secret word, by the way. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah it's a, I usually apply it, to, it too, too freely. As okay, Cal now what, what you've just said, I want to ask Cal. Cal, would you... Any agreement with with uh, the with Bob's assessment? Well, of I want to disagree Clinton? with your premise there that, uh, that that Hillary has a reputation of uh, getting things done. I mean, she tried Hillary Care, and that was defeated by a Democratic Congress. That was her big thing, you know. And during the Clinton administration, she was, she was just a she kid. Hasn't really, yeah, she was she hasn't from really, baking cookies. She at that really point. hasn't done anything substantive. She's flown around the world. I'm all for a woman president. They certainly couldn't do well, worse than the men. It's, it's, it's but irrelevant. I feel like I, you're. It's irrelevant whether she's a woman. Well, the point it is, be, but it isn't. We're in identity politics now. You know, we had the. We, we're all excited about the first African American president. I feel like uh, the woman with uh, five kids who was asked if you had to do it over again, would you have five kids? She said yes, just not these five. So uh, I'm, Bob, all for, I'm all for an African-American president, a Hispanic president, a female president, any kind of president. But I care what's up here more than what I can see on the outside. Well, that's where we differ. So uh, Bob, Bob has just but, – but I'm just interested in Bob's assessment of, of Hillary Clinton as somebody who's moderate – uh, and as somebody who has been receiving plaudits from people like Orrin Hatch. Any, any thoughts on that? You don't agree with that? Well, Forget Hatch about whether a, she can look, get Orrin stuff Hatch done. Orrin Hatch was a close friend of Ted Kennedy, too. I think he was probably closer to him for a longer period of time because he was in the Senate longer than Hillary Clinton was. But, it, you know, it, it's, it's about your ideology and your worldview. I've got a whole chapter in my book on the various worldviews. We, 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 we all process information depending on the worldview that we have. And it's important to know. You know, Hillary Clinton wrote this book, It Takes a Village, and most people, whether they've read it or not, understand the central message was the central role of government. I believe in the central role of parents. 
I believe in freedom of the individual, not the collective. Okay, and but do you think Hillary Clinton is ideologically opposed to those things? Well, not, I think practically, whether it's ideologically or not, she believes in big government. I mean, Hillary Care okay, was Bob, the, do you was agree the with forerunner that? No, of Obamacare. No, no, you don't think she believes in big government? No, not at all. I, I don't, uh, I mean, everything that I've seen about her and everything that she did, uh, I mean, if there was one person behind pushing Bill hard to do welfare reform was Hillary Clinton. Now, maybe she had a political agenda with it, but, but welfare reform was probably one of the most successful pieces of legislation in the 90s. Looking for a response from Cal. Well, he, voted, he vetoed it twice, and then, of course, when, uh, I don't want to get into the details, people in New York probably don't care about Washington that much, and that's one of the problems. But, uh, I mean, he vetoed it twice, then when, when the Republicans took back the House and he realized he was going to re, uh, be overridden, he signed it and did what any good politician would do, took credit for it. But he was right to do so. The left I said, think actually Dick Morris took credit for yeah, it. Yeah, well, that too. Anyway, that's another story. Uh, the, he, you know, remember, the left was saying and the media were saying, we, if, we, if we end welfare as we've known it, people are going to starve in the streets. They didn't. They got jobs. And this is part of the... This is, let me tell you this quick story. Several years ago on 60 Minutes, Leslie Stahl did this incredible story. But by the way, before you tell this story, uh, we've got about five... Five minutes left. Just to want to make sure that uh, Bob gets the last word. I will tell it in 60 go, seconds. No, no, go ahead. Go she ahead. did this story on hardcore unemployed Americans. And she found this, this uh, program that ran out of the basement of a Harlem housing project. These were people who'd never had jobs higher than a hamburger flipper minimum wage. And most of them had never had a job at all. So the guy gets up, all minorities, minority-led. Guy gets up, how many people think racism is a problem in America? By the way, this is the subject racism of our USA Today column tomorrow. Uh, every hand goes up. He says, okay, so what? Your problem isn't racism, your problem's attitude, and that's what we're going to change. Well, I reached for the remote and cranked up the sound. They taught them how to cut their hair, how to, wear, how to dress for a job interview, how to look a prospective employer in the eye, how not to shift their weight or look at the floor, how to shake hands, things that we take for granted. They followed this, this one African-American woman up to a job interview, stayed outside, the cameras did. She went in, she came out, she was in tears. Was she rejected? No. She got a job. For the first time in her life, she felt she had value. She always did have value, but the system just kept telling her she didn't have value. So I wrote a column about this. Three weeks later, when my hate mail came in, among it were checks and a note, please send this off to the, you know, this program. And I called up Leslie Stahl and I said, hey, I'm getting all these checks. And she said, we are too. We've never had such a positive response on a 60-minute story in years. And I said, now, what's the message from this? And I concluded the message was that the American people, we are a generous people. We want to help other people who want to help themselves. But what we don't want to be told is that those who played by the rules, who did the right thing, who worked hard, who invested their own capital, who built a business, who built a family, and are responsible and dedicated and have character and virtue, uh, are now evil and enemies and owe people who slept till noon, took drugs, had five babies out of wedlock with five different guys on welfare and all the rest, and that we owe them. That's what we don't like. And that's the class warfare and the division that's going on in this country that is hurting us as a nation. If, if ever you sounded like a... Bob, would you, would you like to, um, to add to that angry old no, uncle's rant? No, I, I think... I think where, uh, uh, where we, where a place we might disagree there is that it is not as simple as going into a minority community and getting people to learn to play differently in a, in, a, in a society that is not structured for them 
to perform well in. Well, I mean, it's not that simple, but it's still a, a good part it, of it. It is a good. It's a good idea. It's a great idea, But listen, I, I was. I gave a speech, Cal and I, last night to to some of the largest contractors in the country, and they had established a program of taking children, uh, kids out of high school and mentoring them in the business of construction, architecture, and engineering. And they, and, and corporate America is becoming much more, and I'll give them this, they've become much more sensitive to their responsibility for helping in, ca in cases like this. Uh, whether it's Bill Gates going down, look at it. They've been, some of the best things that have been done have been done by private entrepreneurs. I, I encourage that. They do a better job than government does. But uh, I know everybody here, as we're wrapping up, they, they, uh, I know most of you We'll probably wish for a Republican Senate, and you've got a Republican House, you'll have it. And you probably want a Republican president in 16. I will just tell you one quick story. Do you think uh, Jeb Bush would be a bad president? I think Jeb Bush would be a good, pretty good president, frankly. Uh, but uh, not the least of which because he understands minorities quite well. And uh, he, unlike some other people, actually speak Spanish. But, Do you think uh, the Tea Party will take him down? I don't think they're strong enough anymore. I think the Tea Party was a passing myth. And it, it, was, it proved itself in North Carolina last night when you looked at the strong arch Tea Party precincts, and they split about evenly between the establishment and the Tea Party candidate. Uh, but I think they had an impact on 2010, there's no question about that. But as a phenomenon, they, we've seen this throughout history in politics. There have been people that have risen groups and then they've gone away. Uh, the Tea Party, I think, had its moment and that's it. But, uh, you know, you be careful what you wish for because... There's a story about uh, two brothers who were killed in a car accident. They were young. Uh, there was the older, more serious brother, Cal, and the younger, friskier brother, Bob. And they go to the pearly gates, and they say, St. Peter, we shouldn't be dead. We're too young. And St. Peter said, boys, I'm having a bad day, too. So I'll tell you what. You can go back to Earth for six months, but you can't be human because you're dead. So pick out what you want. So the serious brother, Cal, says, I'd like to be an eagle. Fine. Younger brother, Bob, says, I'd like to be a stud. Fine. Six months go by, they don't come back, so he calls the angel Gabriel and says, Gabe, go down and get those two brothers. Cal's not going to be hard to find. He's an eagle over the Grand Canyon somewhere, the Golden Gate Bridge. The younger brother Bob's going to be a little bit more difficult because he's a two-by-four in a condominium someplace in New Mexico. Uh, so I, uh, I think that's... Uh, is, you have to be careful in politics what we wish for. I... I never voted for a Republican in my life, and the reason for that was when I was eight years old, my dad took me into a voting booth, and he said, son, you see that Republican, the Democratic line? He said, pull that. All good things are going to happen to you. Women, money, jobs, anything you want. I said, what if you're going to pull, uh, pull the Republican lever? He said, you're going to die. <laughs> so every time I've ever gotten close to a Republican lever, my hand goes like this, and I can't do it. And now you add to that the normal shakes of getting older, it's really tough to get to Republican. But but I think that uh, I, I think the parties themselves have become fairly archaic, mm -hmm. uh, and that the time will come, there will be a third party candidate uh, who will rise up and will show these two parties that there the people of the United States is other ways out. Anybody runs, for example, just I'll close on this. It's funny coming from a liberal. But if you ran on reforming the tax code of this country mm. and say we're going to simplify yep. it, whether yeah, you man. want to make it a flat tax, you want to make yep. it a consumption tax, yep. but we're going to do away with it all. Yeah. You know, we, we have more deductions than we have income. Sure. And, and you, can you imagine what the, what the special interests would do with that? They would go crazy. They've invested their lives in protecting these things. Change the tax pattern, and I think you'll find much more equality in America and a much yep. simpler system. Okay. Yeah, right. That's uh, 
talk about a note of common ground. Uh, I, I want to end on that, but actually not quite. I just have to ask you something. It has no bearing on anything substantive. You mean like the rest of the evening? Uh, <laughs> the evening's not over yet. Oh. Um, is it true that you almost died choking from a shrimp, and is it true that Roger Ailes saved your life? It is, it is true. Um, that is true? That is a true story. When did that happen? Well, we, are, we, we found out that The Five, which was supposed to be a temporary show just for the summer, to take Glenn Beck's place when he was fired, and, and, Glenn, and the Nazis all left William and didn't watch it oh, at shit. 5 o'clock anymore. And so it turns out that The Five had no advertisement, he just took off. I mean, it's got a bigger, bigger, eyes, bigger. So Ailes made it a permanent show. So we went over to celebrate it at uh, Del Fresco's, or whatever that joint's called. And uh, I was eating a shrimp. And, uh, people uh, traditionally, uh, traditionally, people choke on steak. I understand that. I understand that. But I, I, I'm not a Republican, so I don't wouldn't yeah, know much about that. <laughs> uh, the, uh, no, it's not a serious note. I was, I, you know, I used to be a, a diver. Uh, that was my hobby and also became a profession for a while. And I know how much air I've got left to live. And I had this shrimp down there. I tried to get it down and tried to get it down. I couldn't get it down. And it was about a minute, 25 seconds. And Ailes turned around to me and I had turned purple. And Ailes got up behind me. And this is a little heavy guy with a big heavy guy. And, he, and I was, had no air. I was about to go. I mean, have you ever thought, think about that white tunnel you hear about? It's true. Uh, I mean, I don't know where it goes, but it, there's a white term. And I was going. Schenectady, but go Ailes, ahead. Right. Uh, and Ailes gave me just enough air so that I could get one breath out. And then Eric Bowling, who is my, um, next to me and the, the biggest right winger on the five, and former base, professional baseball player, jumped over the table, gave me the Heimlich, and I survived. And the next day, of course, the New York Post said, Ailes saves liberals' life, and Ailes got more hate mail than he's ever had in his life. <laughs> Uh, well, so yeah, that's a true story. Yeah. So we're gonna. We're. I think that's a great anecdote on which to end. Let me just tell you, this is crazy. It is a joy. I want to thank uh, both of you so much for being willing to come here and uh, listen to my stupid introduction and have this it was uh, great. It was conversation. Great. It's a joy. Uh, please thank you very much thank from Socrates in the city. Thank you. Thank you.